So what is identity? Well, identity has a lot to do with how we see ourselves and what we project to the world. And so we're going to explore that and its relationship to Jesus, our identity. And to start, I want to show a short video clip. Now, a bit of a background about this video clip. It's an advertisement for a TV channel in Denmark. And you think that's a little bit obscure, and it is. It's a very good ad, and it's mainly in English, but there are some subtitles. But as you watch this video clip, have a think about what moves you and what strikes you as unusual. So here's this video clip. It's easy to put people in boxes. There's us, and there's them. The high earners, and those just getting by. Those we trust, and those we try to avoid. There's the new Danes, and those who've always been here. The people from the countryside, and those who've never seen a cow. The religious, and the self-confident. There are those we share something with, and those we don't share anything with. Welcome. And then suddenly, there's us. We who believe in life after death. We who've seen UFOs. And all of us who love to dance. We who've been bullied. And we who've bullied others. And then there's us, the lucky ones who've had sex this past week. We who are broken-hearted. We who are madly in love. We who feel lonely. We who are bisexual. And we who acknowledge the courage of others. We who have found the meaning of life. And we who have saved lives. And then there's all of us who just love Denmark. So maybe there's more that brings us together than we think. It's quite moving, isn't it? But did you see at the beginning how those folk expressed their identity? There were the nurses who were in the caring profession. And then there was the professionals in the suits expressing their identity. Uh, and then there were people like, did you notice the religious? They were the football fans, which I think was uh, quite, quite, quite funny from a secular point of view, a little bit sad from a Christian point of view, but you can see where they're coming from. And then we had the outsiders and various other people. And so those folk had a sense of identity that was tied up with being a professional caregiver, being a, a suit, have, you know, being professional, being an immigrant. And that's how they tied up their identity. So we're going to explore identity, and we're going to start by looking at how in New Zealand, how the different generations found their identity. So 
If we have a look at my parents' generation, my parents' generation were those called builders and were born before 1945. So how, in my parents' generation, would they form their identity? Well, it was all about, it was all about conforming all about conforming to the expectations of the day. So you went to school, you went to church, and the government also, they had expectations, and the expectations were enforced by guilt. It was all about what you should and shouldn't do. So you think about the school you went to. Did you go to a co-ed school or a single-sex school or a private school? Did you go to a church? And if so, what's church? Often careers were a career that you would stay in for life. And this is how you got your identity. It was all about conforming to society's expectations and guilt was just around the corner. So that's how the builder generation formed their identity. And you come, then came my generation, uh, the baby boomers, and we weren't interested in guilt and we weren't interested in institutions telling us who we were. The meaning of life was to discover it within yourself. So your identity was all about looking inside and finding that dream, that inner child. Guilt was to be rejected by boomers at all costs. And so the guiding principle was that we were born with a clean slate, but society's expectations screwed us up and we were having none of it. And so people like the Beatles were our heroes. And if you followed the Beatles, they started off with clean cut, short haircuts, wearing almost suits. Then they went to India and discovered themselves and came back with long hair, psychedelic clothes, change of music. They were kind of representative of the baby boomers, those people that would say, we're going to reject institutions that tell us who we are and we're going to find our own identity by discovering it within ourselves. And now you come to the next generation, to the millennials, the X and the Y generation. How do they perceive their identity? We're talking about our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. For them, it's different. You can create your own identity. So if you're a young person, you don't get it from an institution or your family. And you don't get it by discovering that dream that's inside you. You create your own identity as you see fit. So you might be a gamer and spend all day playing video games or a sports jock. Or you might be an influencer. Whatever. You create your own identity. And alongside this is an intense sense of justice. Young people want to see justice done, in particular when it comes to minorities, so they can express themselves freely, but also things like climate change. And so you see the three different ways that the generations have got their identity. Builders, it was all about conforming. Boomer generation, it was all about discovering that dream and following it. And for our children or grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it's what identity will I create for myself? Now, you may be surprised or you may not be surprised that the gospel disagrees with all three of those ways that we gain our identity. The gospel claims that our identity cannot be found or truly expressed apart from God. And here's a quote that helps emphasize this. It's from Thomas Chalmers. 
There is an aching void within the heart which the possessions of the world are utterly unable to fill. We try to fill this void with everything around us. We try and fill the void with money, with relationships, with success and material possessions. But no matter how much we accumulate, how much we achieve, how much we indulge, the void remains. It is a God-shaped vacuum and only God can fill it. And because of this God-shaped hole, this void, this vacuum, any attempt to discover or to lean into our identity will fall short if we exclude God. Let me put it like this. Our identity, our core identity is received. It's not achieved. We don't discover our true identity by working hard to conform, by discovering what's within us or creating an identity of our choice. That's not where we get our identity from, by achieving, we receive our identity as we draw close to God. And we think about our young people today, what happens? Well, they, they think about an identity that they want to project. And of course, a lot of this is tied up with social media, something that we never had. And so they will create this identity, and it might be the sports jock. It might be the academic, the SWAT it might be the social butterfly, you know, the, the one that's at the centre of the influencer. And what they do is then they put that online, but they put themselves under a tremendous amount of pressure because they have to get that identity right. And they have to sustain that identity that they're projecting out into the world. And the online world can be a horrible place. So one of our, some, a young person will come up with an identity and they start projecting that on Instagram and TikTok and places like that. Facebook's a little bit um, last century for our young folk. A few people are on Facebook, young ones. But they project their identity onto the social media platforms and then they can rant and rave about those that disagree with them. But it's, it's just, it can be awful because then when they are not consistent when they're not authentic to their identity, people start screaming at them, saying, you claim to be one of us, but you're not. what you're doing is hurting us. And so for a young folk who create their identity and then project it online, then it can be pretty hard out there, pretty mean and pretty cruel. Now, this is a big contrast to the Christian faith where our identity is received because of who Jesus Christ is. And for what he has done for us, our identity is tied up with being loved, accepted, and forgiven. This is the bedrock for our identity. It's not something that's given to us, something we discover, something we create. But we are loved, accepted, and forgiven as Christians. We are adopted as dearly loved daughters and sons. Because Jesus, he gave up his glory and his power and his privilege to live among us, and then die for us on the cross. He paid the penalty for our inhumanity to each other and our inhumanity to God. He took our punishment on himself. And because of this, when we believe in Jesus, we are loved and accepted and forgiven unconditionally and forever. I become right with God in Christ the moment I believe in Christ. 
And that means the minute I become a Christian, the minute I believe God loves me the same way that he will love me in a million years' time when I am perfect. He loves me that much today. And that's where we get our core identity. It means that the ups and downs of my performance don't affect me at a core level. You see, when we create our identity, which our young people do a lot, they are role-playing. We are role-playing when we create our identity. And we put ourselves under horrible pressure to get it right. However, for those believing in Jesus, this is far less an issue because our identity is received and it's not achieved. Because my identity is not based on me being a perfect mother or being the breadwinner or the influencer or the SWAT or the gamer or transgender or whatever I project, when life becomes difficult in these areas, I don't implode on myself. Let me give you a couple of examples. Take a talented rugby player who's created an identity around being athletic. He topped the age grades as he was growing up and captained the rep teams. He moved on to secure a contract for a regional franchise and was even selected to join the all-blank camp a few times to train. But then his career peaked and he collected a few niggling injuries. And in his early 30s, his contract with the provincial rugby team he played for was not renewed. Now here's the question. Where does he turn to for his identity when his identity was created on his sporting prowess? He loved his identity. He worked hard to get his identity. He was respected for his identity. But now, without playing rugby, he went through an identity crisis. You see, when my identity has been tied up with this, whatever this is, when this is gone, I feel like I'm a nothing. And so it can happen in the sports arena. But let me give you another example that I found when I was researching this topic. A true story that was in a magazine article. And it's about a granddaughter who writes about her relationship with her grandmother. Now, her grandmother was an accomplished woman. She was ahead of her time. She had a job as a professor teaching at a university long before this was common for women. And this grandmother was adored by her family. However, the grandmother was obsessed with physical beauty, in particular her figure. She constantly emphasised when her granddaughter was around that girls were supposed to be beautiful and thin. Now one year the granddaughter gained eight kilograms, which can happen when one grows up. So she visited her grandmother and they were around the, the dinner table, and the granddaughter reached out to take a slice of bread, and the grandmother slapped her on the hand and told her that she couldn't have that bread. In fact, she said, the grandmother said to the granddaughter, unless she lost five kilograms, she couldn't come and stay with her grandmother for the summer. So the granddaughter spent the next, next six years on diets and weight loss programs trying to please her grandmother. And when she lost weight the grandmother would celebrate. But if she put weight on, then the grandmother said her granddaughter couldn't visit. 
Now this fixation with weight stayed with the grandmother even as she neared death. And so the grandmother was in hospital and it was sort of terminal. It was sort of palliative care. And so the granddaughter travelled to visit her grandmother. And even at life's end, this woman had so set her heart on beauty that nothing else mattered. And so even though she'd lost weight, every day she would ask the nurse to weigh her. And the granddaughter was in the room and the nurse weighed her and she was 38 kilograms. And the grandmother panicked. She freaked out. She thought that she had put on weight, but the nurse was lying. Her optimal weight was 50 kilograms. And so she thought she was over 50 kilograms and the nurse was lying. And so she was just... Uh, she was just crying and there were tears. And the granddaughter, seeing how upset the grandmother was, ran over and said, no, grandmother, you're still 50 kilograms. It's okay. You're still 50 kilograms. And the granddaughter writes, in that moment, I forgave my grandmother. Now, that's an extreme example, but that's what happens when we try and achieve our identity. If we see ourselves as the beautiful one, is that where we get our identity from? What happens when that is threatened? Or if I'm the breadwinner and I'm made redundant? Or what happens if I define myself as the muso or the swat and these become threatened? And they all do. However, for a Christian, because our identity is received and not achieved, When these hardships, when these troubles come, they don't knock us around as much. Our life doesn't implode. Our identity is tied up with being loved, accepted and forgiven. Adopted as dearly loved children to the Son of God. Now a lot of what being a Christian is 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 called reordering our loves. And so before we're Christians, we love things, but we have them out of order. And so for men, they might have their, their career first, and then their friends, and then their family. You know, And that's not the right order, is it? <laughs> you should have family first. However, where's God in the mix? So what happens is we have these loves, and they're good things. But before they're Christians, they're out of order. And then Christ comes into our life, and what he does is he reorders our loves. So if we get back to the sportsman, the sportsman had sports as his first love, and then he probably had his mates and then his family and all that. Well, if Jesus comes into his life, then the deal is actually I am. Jesus is the first love, and that's where you get your identity. And then family, and then your sports. You see what I mean? And so part of being a Christian is having our loves reordered because it's fatal to have what's fourth on the list as first on the list. And that's what often happens with identity when we put something else apart from God at the top. Now, as I'm talking about this, there's an understandable concern that some people have, and this is the concern. If I invite Jesus into my life, will he impose an identity on me that I don't like? And so someone imagines what they think a Christian should be, what's their ideal for a Christian, uh, and then they think, will God make a carbon copy of me so that I'll be exactly like and whatever you think an ideal Christian is? And I'm thinking glory avail type things, isn't it? So, you know, if 
if I hand my life over to God, will, he, will I have to wear a blue shirt and a tie if I'm a man and, and a, blue, a navy blue frock if I'm a girl? I'm mean, exaggerating, but that's the threat, isn't it? We think that God will smother our personality. But that's not how it works. I like C.S. Lewis and his, his little insight. And he puts it like this. Imagine that you have never seen salt before. Never seen it. And someone gives you a teaspoonful of salt to taste. And you do. And you pull a face. <laughs> and you think, this is so strong that salt would overpower any food that you put it in. And so the person who's given you salt then explains that if you put salt in food, it brings out the best of it. If you put it in your baking, it brings out the best flavour in the baking. If you put salt on, uh, on some meat as you're about to cook it, it brings the best flavour out. If you'd never seen salt before, you'd think, no, that's crazy. Salt will overpower the food. And it's very similar with Jesus. Some people think that if I invite Jesus into my life, he will overpower my personality. But it's not. He is the salt that will bring the best out of you. Which means whoever you're sitting next, you will not be the same as that person. You will be your own personality that Jesus will bring out. So that's the first concern some people have if they say, well, if Jesus is my identity, will I just be the same as some how I imagine Christians to be? But that doesn't mean to say that Jesus won't make changes. And I, again, from C.S. Lewis, I love this parable. I've used it before and I'm sure I'll use it again. And it's the fact is that Jesus does make changes. And C.S. Lewis says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes into your house to rebuild it. Now at first, you can understand what God's doing. He's getting the drains right. And he's stopping the leaks in the roof. And you knew that these jobs needed doing. So you're not surprised when God comes in and makes some repairs. But presently, God starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly. And in a way that seems to be making no sense. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is this. He is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. God is throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers and he's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but God is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. Isn't it a wonderful story, a wonderful image? When we become Christians, God is not finished with us. He's just started. And most of what God does in our lives, we understand. But now and again, he will do things in our lives that we wonder what he's on about. But that's because he's not content with making us into a little cottage. He wants us to make us into a mansion where he will come in and dwell. So let me finish with a reference back to the video. You remember that young person who stood alone. And he stood alone because he was the only person that was bisexual there. Now, you know, whatever you think about his lifestyle, let's think of the courage that it took to do what he did. And how did the people respond? Oh, they clapped, didn't they? They applauded his courage. Why? Because... He stood up for his identity. Well, Jesus knows what it is to stand alone. 
When Jesus stood alone, however, nobody applauded. Nobody clapped. Nobody cheered. Instead, the crowd yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And you know that Jesus was there for the same reason as that young man. That young man was there because he identified as a bisexual. Jesus was on trial because he identified as the son of God. And you know, Jesus was given a choice. He could, ident- he could deny his identity. He could deny being the son of God and he could have lived. Or the other choice was that he could remain authentic true to himself, and face the most painful of deaths. And we know what he chose. He chose to remain true to his identity. Then he died on the cross so that we would not be lost and so that we can find our true identity in Christ. Let me finish with this quote from Thomas Chalmers. No matter how much we accumulate, no matter how much we achieve, No matter how much we indulge, the void remains. It is a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. When we ask Christ into our lives, he fills the vacuum and he gives us our true identity. He reorders our loves so that Christ is number one. And then our identity is rock solid, authentic, and one that brings great joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you. Thank you for the gift of identity that we have as daughters and sons of you, the living God. And we pray for our young folk. We pray for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren who are wrestling with this whole idea of identity where, where it's thrown out that um, uh, you know gender and sexuality is of their choosing and all sorts of things, Lord, and it's a real muddled place for our young people to be. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that our young folk, those that are dear to us, our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, will find their identity in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name.